Thank you to the music team for your faithfulness and the blessing that you guys are to us. And uh, we appreciate your sacrifices. Uh, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We've been focusing on the birth of Jesus Christ for the last uh, few weeks, and this is the culmination of the three-part series, and uh, I will end today, even though it may take me two hours, um, <laughs> I will end today. <clears throat> it is a little bit of a longer sermon, but it's, it won't be uh, two hours. We left off looking at the announcement of the angel to Mary. We are in Luke 1 from 26 through to 35. We saw in 31 that he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Two prophetical statements. You will conceive and you will Name him Jesus. Now, the last part of that um, phrase, in fact, the, the, the structure of the sentence, verse 31, is similar to um, an almost word for word to Isaiah 7:14. And she will conceive and bear a son and call his name, what? Emmanuel. And that is significant on a number of levels because what the angel does here and what Luke wants, to, wants the readers to understand as well is who Jesus is. And that is where we find um, ourselves in the passage this morning. That's verse 32 through to 35. An often neglected aspect of the birth of Jesus Christ relates to the reign of Jesus. Often we think about the birth of Jesus in terms of, yes, his incarnation and yes, the cross. That is true. The reason he was born is so that he may die on the cross, but that is not the end. Often Christians leave Jesus hanging on a cross. The Catholic Church, for instance, what do they wear on their neck? What do they have on the beads? What do they have in the church? It is Jesus on a cross. Neither is the resurrection the end? That means that Christians, true Christians, don't wear Jesus on a cross, right? You should have a crown on your chest. Because he was born to reign. That's the entire point of what Luke and the angel is getting to. And so we will look at the significance of the birth of Jesus Christ in terms of his future Rain. The angel moves from focusing, or I should say speaking to Mary, and now speaking about Jesus. The whole intent of this revelation, the announcement to Mary, was to make known who Jesus is. Now remember what I said last week. There is a hermeneutical um, 
dilemma that is taking, well, it's not a dilemma, an application that is taking place. The angel replaces Emmanuel with Jesus. That is called correspondent replacement. He wants the reader, or in this case, Mary, to understand who Jesus is by saying, quoting Isaiah 7.14 and then replacing Jesus with Emmanuel. So he's making a correspondent equal, equal statement that Jesus is Emmanuel. And now he's going to prove how Jesus is Emmanuel. He explains the significance of Jesus born of this woman. There are three descriptions concerning Jesus. Can I ask one of you to close one of those blinds. I think it's that one. Yeah, it's blinding, blinding. The future predictive, and I call it promissory claims here in verse 32 to 33, tells us of the absolute guaranteed certainties concerning things relating to Jesus. Take note. Verse 32. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Amen. What a dramatic statement. What you would expect after this is Emmanuel, God with us, is the cross, right? You would expect the significance of Jesus' birth to point to the reality of the cross, but it's not. What the angel and what Luke focuses on here is that the significance of the birth points to the reign of Christ. All these, the descriptions of who Jesus is and what Jesus will do, are wrapped up in one phrase. There is one point to the statement. And it is found in the beginning of verse 32. He will be great. That is the most important statement in this two, these two sentences. So if you do your line diagramming, right on the left, not line, block diagramming, right on the left, it will be, he will be great. That is your main clause. Everything else is subordinate to that, and I would say qualifying what it means for him to be great. And that helps us with an outline. It's very simple. He will be great. He's explained by being called the son of the most high. He will be great because he will receive the throne of his father, David. He will be great because or since he will reign over the house of Jacob and his reign will be forever. Those are the three components of his greatness. And I'll repeat the outline in a different format in a moment's time. What the angel wants Mary to understand is how significant Jesus is. How great this one who will be born of this woman would be. Interesting, there is nothing about the resurrection in the section. Nothing. How great is the resurrection? That's pretty dramatic, right? That is like defying death kind of stuff. And it is. Jesus comes alive out of the dead, from the dead, from the grave. So it's not a cross that we should wear on our chains. It's not even an open grave that we should wear on our grave. But what is the focus here? 
Look at the last line. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. What is that talking about? His reign. If you want to magnify and glorify uh, Jesus Christ, wear a crown on your chain. Because that's the point of his birth. That is what the angel is bringing to Mary. This child which will be born of you is a king who will reign. It has one point, and it is this. I'm going to give you the outline. The divine greatness of Jesus is expressed in three inescapable certainties. His greatness is explained in these three certainties. Number one, his exalted position as the Son of the Most High. So you only have to write out his exalted position. Number two is his eternal throne that he will receive. And number three is his unmistakable reign. Explained in two ways. Over the house of Jacob and the eternal nature of his reign. That's the sermon. I mean, I could, I could end right here and pray and say, Lord, bless your word. Because that is the entirety of what the angel gives to Mary in a synopsis format. If you understand that, that his greatness is seen in his exalted position, his eternal throne, and his unmistakable reign, you've got the point of this revelation. You've got the point of this prediction we could and i was tempted to spend some time on each one of them because they are so significant and you know me i love part one part two and part ten so what does it mean for him to be great since that is the most significant statement in this sentence or these two sentences it will help us to understand the significance of this Word, he will be great. So let me just put it in context for you. So now he is explained to Mary that she will conceive, she will bear a son, and she will call his name Jesus. Jesus is equal to Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And so by replacing Jesus, he wants to show how significant Jesus is. And now he's going to show her how significant this Jesus is because look at the personal pronoun he. What is that referred to? Who is he talking about? Jesus. The angel is expositing Jesus. He will be great. And so now you know who he's talking about. What does it mean that he is great? This greatness expresses his divine unmatched majesty due to his status, nature, and rule. In other words, there is no one like him. That is in that clause. He will be great. He alone will be the great one. It is prophecy. It is looking forward. Now, I'm going to compare this to how it is used of the, the prophet John. Look at chapter 1 verse 15. Speaking about uh, um, John, who will be the forerunner to Jesus. Notice what it says. For he will be great. Isn't that the same? Yes. Look at the next line. Before the Lord. That's called a compliment or a qualifying praise. John's greatness is demonstrated before God, but it also means that he may not be great before people, but his greatness is bestowed and is in the sight of God. That is called derived greatness. 
not innate greatness. This is something that God views um, or, or bestows on the prophet John. God thinks highly of him. But take note of the difference. Verse 32. He will be great. End of the line. Full stop. That is the main clause. There is no qualifying statement there. This is literally unqualified greatness. This is who he is by his nature, by his existence. He equals greatness. We use this word great for everything and anything in the English language. I am late. Great. I will be late. I'm early. Great. The trifle is great. How are you? Great. There's, there's no difference in how we use it. That's just the horror of the English language. And um, non-English speakers fear to learn English because it's just so ambiguous. In the Greek, though, it is so much more nuanced. In, for instance, sake, it could mean... To be above average. So our trumpet player is above average. He's great. Right? I was going to be rude, but I will leave it at that. <laughs> or it could be to be above standard in intensity. Who do you think is the most intense player in the music band? Yes, amen. So <laughs> he is above standard in intensity. And then to exceed a standard, he's just... He excels. He's slightly above everyone else. Who do you think that is? I think Fabian. Just saying. I know you thought the drummer, but um, he's on par with the trumpet. And then there is to stand out. I think that's Taryn. She hides behind the scene, but she stands out, right? <laughs> yes. Was that terrible? <laughs> but when this word is used of deity, it means the thing or the person, because deity could mean either, is superior in importance and significance. There is no equal to that deity. That means that literally to be in a position of prominence, to possess greatness in length, height, and breadth, there is no equal to that position. That is a sense that is being used here of Jesus, that he is incomparable, incomparable in his status. Secondly, this word is also used of God. Listen to Psalm 86, verse 10. In the Alex X, it is the same word. So I'm going to read it to you in um, the English translation for you are great, same word, and do wondrous things. You alone are God. It demonstrates the, the significance and the prominence of God as a person. That he does wondrous things and he's by nature great. You can see that also in Psalm 135 verse 5. I know that Yahweh is great. That's an attribute of his nature. And he's Lord above all gods. There is no God that equals his status of greatness. His prominence is unique. God is great in terms of his nature and his activities. There's no one that can be compared to his greatness. Keep that in mind. This is who God is. The reason we, we struggle to make this connection from the, from the new to the old is because we make a 
a very hard distinction between the New Testament and the Old Testament. There is continuity between the Old and the New. God of Israel in the Old Testament is God of Israel and the church in the New Testament. Is this given, this promise given in the New Testament or in the Old Testament? Hmm. When is this promise given? He was born, Galatians 4, 4, under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So when was he born? Under the law of Moses, Old Testament. In our Bible, this is New Testament. This is still part of the Old Testament. We don't see that as being part of the Old Testament and because it's written in the New Testament in our English translations. But this is a continuation of God's work in the old being fulfilled in the new. In fact, the angel wants um, uh, um, Mary to make the connection and Luke wants his readers to make the connection. How do I know that? Because he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. And he will, um, uh, and you shall call his name Jesus. Emmanuel is Jesus. And so thinking Old Testament, she is, he continues in that line, the very next prophecy that is significant about the son is he will be great and will be called the son of the most high what the angel has just done in calling jesus great is replace the understanding of who god is in the old testament with who jesus If the Old Testament readers read, he will be great, they would immediately think of God because that is by nature who God is. So what's the point? This man, Jesus, is what? God. It's a statement of equality. And he explains why this means that he's equal with God in this clause. He will be great. This is demonstrating the unmatched position and status of Jesus. What an amazing reality. This man born is equal with God. He hasn't explained it yet, and he will in a moment, so it should make better sense in a moment's time. No one can receive the quality, the position, the attribution of the status than Jesus. He's Emmanuel, and therefore, he is great, and therefore, he is God. The child born of Mary is God, who is great. Now, not only will he explain what he means by he is great. The first reality is explained in his high position. Jesus is great because he possesses an exalted position. Look at verse 32. He will be great, and he will be called the son of the most high. Not the son of Joseph, the son of the most high. Also, take note that this is future. He will be called the son of the most high. Now, when we hear that, we are thinking in terms of this is what he will be called on a regular basis. But no, his name is Jesus. That is what he will be called while on earth. 
This is a future prophecy, and I will prove that to you. This relates to the proper designation of the divinity of the Son. It reveals the inbreaking of the divine supernatural God into the realm of humanity as God comes to earth, but yet He is supreme in His position. That means He never drops in His status. This is who He is. Son of the Most High is a designation of deity and supremacy. So becoming the Son doesn't mean He drops in His status as being God or being lesser than God. I know that there's a view that for the purpose of redemption, Jesus became a man and therefore He is lower in His status or His position. That's not the view. I think we struggle with sonship because we think of a son as being less than the father. That is probably true in our culture and in our society. But in the Jewish mind, that means something different. And I'll point that out to you in a moment's time. Notice he does not say that he will become the son of the Most High. Why? Because he is. Sonship did not begin at the incarnation. Sonship was not granted at the resurrection. Jesus has always been, I should say Christ, has always been the eternal Son of God. He will be called the Son of the Most High is independent of His function to redeem His people. Does that make sense to you? His Sonship is through whether he redeems, meaning coming, comes to earth and saves people or not. Because that, the redemption of people, is not the main point that the angel is making. We struggle with that statement that I've just made because we think that our salvation is the most important thing that God could conceive. We think our redemption is the most important task of Jesus. It is not. What is the angel saying? You will conceive. You will be a son. He will be great. And he will reign. Where do you see the cross in that? Nowhere. Because that's not the point that the angel is making. Yes, Jesus was born to die. But the, the death of Jesus Christ is the means or, or the, the way through which he will get to the throne. Now, why, why does it say son of the most high? In the Old Testament, this would be the Hebrew designation El Elyon. And most of you know that word. It's a common word for God, a common designation of who God is. And it's literally just uh, uh, translated as the one who's the most high. That is exclusively used of God emphasizing his majesty and his supremacy in his sovereignty. The God who's highest and who reigns above all. Again, this was only used of God. This is an unmistakable, unmistakable correlation that the angel, will, the angel is making. Notice what he says. He will be great. And how do you know that he will be great? Because he will be called Son of the Most High. Now, again, we are thinking son in terms of 
lesser than. In Semitic languages, that is not true. The son was equal to the father in capacity to reign. He's called the heir for a reason. If the father falls away, who takes over? The one who is the equal authority and capacity to reign, to stand in the place of the father. So to call someone David's son is to acknowledge his equality with the father. In Semitic languages, the idea is to be a carbon copy of the father. So often the phrase was used, um, Ben Yamin, son of Yamin, or um, what is his last name? Cameron Davidson, son of Dawid. That's how you pronounce his name. You can call him Dawisan now. Dawisan. <laughs> it was that the son possessed the exact same authority as the father, as the heir. But that only kicks in when the father dies. So he's, he's heir to the throne. He's heir to the position of father. And so he gets everything that the father has. It is no different here, but in this case, the father never moves of the scene. And so the son is therefore equal to the most high. Son of the most high is the one who possesses the same quality, the same position, and the same authority in sovereignty as the most high. That's the significance of this phrase. So his greatness is demonstrated in his high and exalted position as being equal with the Most High. That is what it means to be son of the Most High. Wow. Consider that. The child born of Mary. Look at Mary's response. Forget the fact that the, the significance of the statement is so dramatic that she says, hang on, hang on, hang on. Can you explain a little bit more? Because I am not of that capacity to be pregnant. I'm a virgin. <laughs> Forget the fact that he is God. That This is a... a a dramatic statement of reality, and she focuses on the fact that she will conceive. Again, Mary is being Mary. Just an, a woman who focuses on the words. And there's nothing wrong with it. it it's, I like how the Bible has humor in it. We just don't know how to look for it. There is no higher position in the universe than to be the son of the Most High. Why? Because Most High means that there is no one higher. So to have the equal position as son of the Most High means that you possess the highest position in all of creation. No one possesses a higher position. Now, notice the, the word called. And he will be called son of the Most High. High. Can you think of an instance where people call Jesus Son of the Most High? Where people give him 
the praise of being equal with the Father or possessing the highest position in all of creation. Exactly. But they're not people. People have not said this yet. But demons do acknowledge that. In Mark 5, 7, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? That is an acknowledgement of deity. The demons understand what it means for him to be Son of the Most High. It is on the lips of Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 6, 35, but love your enemies and do good and uh, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Not, not speaking of Jesus, but speaking of his people. The Most High there refers to a position of deity as being the Supreme One. You can see another acknowledgement of deity in Matthew 5.45. There is no higher position as the Most High. Psalm 18.17, Yahweh also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. 47.2 says, For Yahweh, the most high, is to be feared. I love that word. I, we had to do a, a semantic and a lexical study of that word um, in just one of my recent courses. It, it means to shudder, to tremble, to be in trepidation. And not just to have reverential fear and awe. It is literally to shake at who He is. So not only does Jesus possess equality with God, he possesses the highest position as God. He possesses this in full measure. The highest rank is given to the Son, yet he has not yet been called the Supreme One, the One who is over all, the, the, the Son of the Most High. That has not been the echo and the chant of people on earth yet. It only happens every Christmas when we read this passage or when somebody exposits this passage inadvertently. To say that Jesus is the Son of the Most High is to identify His quality, His equality with God, but also His highest position over all and being sovereign over all. Born to a kingly line, yet relegated to a family that breaks stones and builds furniture. That is the line of the kings of Judah. But this one, he will be great because he will receive the rightful title that is rightfully his, son of the Most High. Is this happening today? Is the world bowing in reverence of Jesus, calling Him the Most High One? No. No. Not at all. So keep that in mind. He who is sovereign and He who will reign is the Most High. Now the second part of the verse explains that God will give to Him the throne of His Father David. So Jesus' um, greatness is made manifest in his highest exalted position and secondly also in the throne that he will receive. And you see that in the last part of verse 32. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High 
and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Just pause there. Take note that the throne will be given to him. I'm going to read it again. So the greatness is expressed firstly in his position. He will be called the son of the most high. And secondly, in what he will possess. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So greatness expressed in the possession or the receiving of the throne. What does it mean that he will give him? That word give is a common word, but it relates to handing over an object. You know, like, I'll give you this water. It's used in Matthew 14 and uh, verse 19 where the disciples give him, they passed over, handed over to him the loaves which he prayed over. Uh, Philippians 4.15, Paul says that no church shared with me in the matter of giving, that is literal physical giving of finances, money, and receiving. Except you, speaking about the Philippian church. There are other words that relate to a more metaphorical sense of handing something over without actually giving something literal, physical. Like, um, I'm passing on the baton of authority. Or I am handing or giving you the leadership role. Am I giving something physical? No, that's a different word. That means to hand over a position without actually giving him a literal object. This word relates to an object. What is being given to the son? He will be given or the Lord God will give to him what? A literal physical object, which is what? A throne. Physical object in view, which is explained as the throne of David. First question that you have to ask is how did the Jews understand this throne? How would they have conceived of it? Isaiah chapter 16, 5. You don't have to turn, I'll just read it. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness, and in the temple of David, he who judges and seeks justice, and is swift to do righteousness. What do you think that means? Is that a metaphorical throne from which he will reign, or is that a literal throne? Seems like a literal throne, right? Because it says, and on it he will sit. A throne from which someone will, on which someone will sit and from which he will judge. I think it's Psalm 89, uh, verse 6. I don't have the passage, I only have the quotation. It says, One of the sons of your body. I will sit on your throne. Literally, I will have to sit on your throne. So is that metaphorical? Is that literal? Literal. He will sit on a throne. He will judge from that throne. And there it speaks about David in Psalm 89. A throne needs a king. A king needs a kingdom. And a kingdom has a government or an ethic. That is what every government has. That is what every kingdom used to have when we were under monarchies. God will resurrect 
the fallen line of David and I will pass it to Jesus who will ascend to David's throne and from that throne he will reign. That's the promise. The throne is unmistakably linked to his reign. So whenever he ascends to take his seat on that throne, that's when the Messiah's kingdom will begin. Again, let me read it to you. And behold, you will conceive, and in, uh, and in your womb you will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus in the replacement of Emmanuel. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the right to reign. That is the throne. Give to him the throne of his father, David. In other words, the throne is unmistakably linked to the Messianic kingdom. You can write this down. 2 Samuel 7, 13 to 16. Psalm 89, 26 to 29. And Psalm 2, 6 to 8. I intended to work through that, but that would be a sermon by itself. So how should we take this promise? Is Jesus going to sit on the Father's throne or has he already sat, not the Father's throne, on David's throne or has he already sat on David's throne? Often covenantalists and post-millennialists would change the meaning and say that he's not a literal throne. Jesus never sat on a literal throne. He's sitting in heaven at the moment because Hebrew says that he ascended to the Father's right hand and he sat down. So there you go. That's a throne. That's, that's David's throne. It's not literally David's throne, but it is a throne that speaks of David. So then Jesus began, at his reign, they would say, began either at his resurrection or at his ascension. And then there are those who say that Jesus' reign began at the incarnation. Okay, so let's put this in perspective. The next line will say that he will reign, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that till I get there. But the, the, the point that the angel is making is that the, the giving of a literal object will be given to, David, to, to Jesus, who is in the line of David. Yet. Some guys would say, no, the father will not give him a literal throne. That changes the angel's meaning. Now let me ask you, who's actually giving this prophecy? Who's actually giving this to Mary? It's God. And I'll show the significance of that in a moment's time. So some say that he's seated on David's throne now. Okay, so then, who today submits and acknowledge him as the most high because they're connected? The highest position is connected to the throne. As God seated on the throne because that's where he will judge from. So who then in this world, and some will say, but the church does. Okay, so how do we acknowledge him then as the highest one who reigns and is sovereign? We don't yet. We proclaim that, but it's not a reality for us yet. When we take the throne to mean anything other than what God is meant in what God has meant by giving this promise, then we change God's meaning. That means you've changed Luke's sense and original meaning. What is happening here? God is reaffirming the promise that he's made in the Old Testament. Remember, we are still under the Old Testament. New Testament have not been ratified yet. 
God is now through the angel, which he did in the Old Testament through the prophets and sometimes through angels as well. He's just restating that I have not forgotten my promise. You go to Psalm 89. I may look at that in a moment's time. In Psalm 89, he says that I made a covenant with David. I will not relent on it. I will not turn my back on it. There will be a son, a seed, a descendant that will sit on that throne. So maybe God was confused and he didn't mean a literal throne. I don't think so. I think God meant what he said when he says through the angel and he will receive or will give to him the throne of his father, David. Let me say again, a king must have a throne, a kingdom, a people, and a government, which is also an ethic. The throne of David, David only mean, meant one thing in the mind of a Jew. That is a literal throne that stands in Jerusalem. What does it say? He will be given. When was it given? Well, it hasn't happened yet. The giving of the throne to Jesus is not a spiritual throne. If the throne is something physical, then how is it now something converted into a spiritual reality? The Lord Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of his father David through the legal um, regal line of Joseph. There is a son who will be acknowledged as a sovereign ruler who will have a throne which is linked to David. Keep that in mind because I'll get back to it. So, not only does Jesus possess the highest position over all, and not only does he have the highest throne over all, but also he has the highest task, task over all. And that is seen in the demonstration of his unmistakable reign. Look at the last part. You will be called son of the most high, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This last demonstration of his greatness is seen in two parts. Number one, he will reign over the house of David. And number two, two, he will reign and there will be no end to his reign. So let's first understand what does it mean that he will reign over the house of Israel. Take note of the identity of the immediate scope of his reign. It is Israel, not the church. Okay, so let me back up. What is literal in this passage? Is the angel literal? Yes, because he spoke to Mary. Is Mary literal? Yes. Is the promise of the son literal? You will conceive. Yes. Is his name literal? You will be called Jesus. Yes. Is it literal that he will be called great? Yes. Is it literal that he will have a throne? Yes. Is it literal that he will reign over Israel? Yes. The minute you start changing 
far too of verse 32 in saying that, well, actually the throne is metaphorical. It is not uh, um, literal. It is physical. And therefore, Israel is not actually Israel, but the church. You have changed God's promise. There's a reason it says the way, says it the way that it says it. He will reign over the house of Jacob. What does the house of Jacob mean? It can only be understood in one way because it is not specifically saying Israel. It speaks of a united Israel. That's how the house of Jacob has always been understood. Why would it be anything different at this stage? Because we've taken theology, placed it before God's word, and looked through the theology and interpreted God's word. Making God a liar. If God does not mean that Jesus is going to reign over the house, the united house of Israel, then God has lied to Israel in the Old Testament because that has always been the promise. It does not say Judah because if it says Judah, then God is going, then Jesus will reign only over a separated Israel. It says the house of Jacob. One meaning in all of Scripture. It is always a united Israel. This reign relates to the kingdom. In fact, everything that has been said up till the stage relates to the kingdom. He will be great. He will be called the son of the Most High. He will receive the throne and he will reign over the house of Israel, of Jacob. That all relates to the kingdom. The people of the kingdom let me put it this way. The focus of the kingdom is actually Israel, not the church. We will reign with him. But the focus of the kingdom is that God will fulfill his promise and ultimately reign over his people. There's a promise in here. He will reign. If God says he will reign, over his people. Guess what's going to happen? He will reign over his people. Sadly, many evangelicals are anti-Semitic in their theology. Listen, they may not be pro-Israel, oh, sorry, pro-Palestine, but they are pro-Gentile, they are pro-church, and has replaced Israel with the church. That is anti-Semitism. Yet God says that the Son will have a throne and He will reign over the united Israel. The Son is literal. His throne is literal. His reign is literal. Therefore, Israel has to be taken literal as well. It's not figurative. It's not meta metaphorical. It's not transcendental reign, as someone said. You know what? I, I read this. And um, in one of the commentaries, somebody says, Jesus reigns in the heart of his people, in the hearts of his people. And he quotes a song, and he reigns within my heart. No! Show me that in the Bible. We, we sing that, right? I don't even know what the song is. Well, what is that chorus? And he reigns within my heart. Is it Jesus loves me? I don't know what it is. But anyway, it, it lives today, yeah. And then he reigns within my heart. Brethren, guys, brethren, guys. Where is that in the Bible? Where do we find Jesus reigning in our hearts? 
You know what we've done? We've taken the majesty of the reign of Christ over his kingdom and reduced it to reigning in an individual's heart. That is not the kingdom. That is reducing the majesty of Jesus Christ to something that is not seen. That is false theology, saints. He doesn't reign within my heart. He's Lord over my life, yes. That means the glory and the majesty and the authority that Jesus Christ should dominate my heart. But it doesn't mean that he's king in my heart. He's king over all that exists. His kingdom is not the kingdom of my heart. This minimizes the reign of Jesus to merely speak about the redemption. To only speak of Jesus' reign in terms of his saving people and reigning in their heart minimizes God's plan of the kingship of Jesus to him just reigning in the hearts of the redeemed. That is a limited reign. And the reign is independent of the fact of redemption. He will reign whether he saves or not. If he chooses not to save any single person, he will reign over all because he's king over all. Yet God by his sovereign plan has determined that in order for the son to get to the throne, he first has to go through what? The cross. The cross, yes, is the means of redemption, but it's not the focus of God in the plan of eternity. I dare not limit the majesty of God's gift to the Son in the throne to a mere spiritual reality. How is Jesus' majesty manifested if he just reigns in our hearts or now in heaven? How do we see it on earth? This is often how the kingdom is understood. And it's called replacement theology or supersessionism. Those make a mockery of God's promise, and I will show why. The giving of the throne to Jesus is a demonstration of the eternal one who will sit upon the throne in Jerusalem. Let's go to the next part. Notice the qualitative of nature of his reign. So he will reign over the house of Jacob, Forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. What makes the throne eternal? When David sat on it, was it eternal? No. When Solomon sat on it, was it eternal? No. Both of them had temporal kingdoms. When they died, their reign ended. The kingdom continued until the next king. And when he died, his reign ended. And so it went on until the last king fled from Jerusalem past the Mount of Olives. And now the kingship or the kingdom has been abandoned. There is no king in Israel. There is no king on the throne of David yet. What makes the throne eternal is the one who will sit on that throne. Because he by nature is eternal, when he's, 
when he is seated on that throne, what happens to it? It will forever be established. That's the point that he's making here. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. So he's going to reign forever because the throne has been given to him. And of his kingdom there will be no end. He will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. There will never be an end to the reign of Jesus Christ. Because that's the promise of the Father to the Son. So why on earth would we want to change that? The qualitative nature of the reign of Jesus Christ is demonstrated by the fact that he will reign. What's it? Infinitum? Infinitum? Whatever that word is. Forever. I'll use the English word. Every king that lived prior to Jesus Christ only reigned for a short period of time. But this king, since he lives forever, his kingdom will endure forever. This is the demonstration of his greatness. Let's go back. Verse 32 again. He will be great. Well, how do I know he will be great? Well, first of all, there will be an acknowledgement of his greatness as the most high. Secondly, there will be a giving of the throne from God the Father to the Son. Then thirdly, there will be a reign that will encompass not only Israel, but all the world. How do I know that? Because it will be forever over all things because he is the supreme one. Listen to what Daniel says in chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end. What is that? That is justice and equity and judgment from the throne, and it shall stand forever. When he comes to reign, you will know that he's present. You will see the demonstration of his righteous reign on this earth. You can also read chapter 7, 14, verse 18, and verse 27. All of these look to the king on his throne, in his kingdom, over all the earth, and over his people. He will receive that kingdom. He will receive that kingdom. To remove the reign of Christ and to demote his majesty as the eternal king to a mystical, unintrusive kingdom. If you read Old Testament prophecies of the kingdom, it is very intrusive. It will be with shock and awe to the nations of this world. He will come and reign with an iron fist. Iron hand. And he will have a righteous rule. The scepter will, rule, will not depart from Judah. The qualitative nature of his reign is a tangible reality, not a mystical spiritual reality. He will reign. And he must reign on the throne forever. This is Jesus born of Mary, God of God, born to a virgin. What a tremendous message. Born from a womb of a sinner in the lowly manger where he laid, yet he will be great. 
Now, all those points that I said to you, keep them in your mind. I'm sure you did. Let me wrap them up. Consider these points. I said, there was a son who will have a throne, who will be from the line of David, who will have a kingdom over which he will reign, and a people who he will reign over. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9. This is why taking this in its literal sense is so significant and important to the prophecy of Luke chapter 1. What is the angel doing here? Look at chapter 9, verse 6. For, for unto us a child is born, to us, what? son is given. What will he be called? Son of the Most High. Look at the next line. And the government or a government will be upon his shoulder, meaning that he will have reign that is different to any other reign. He will, he will rule a, and have a, an ethic for his people. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, you may have in your translations everlasting Father. The literal Hebrew term there is Father of Eternity. The one who's sovereign over eternity. Prince of Peace and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Look at this. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. And from this time, the time that he ascends to the throne, forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. So let me ask you, where is the cross in that prophecy? You don't find it. That prophecy includes the first coming and then also the second advent. But the main point of the prophecy of Jesus Christ in, in Isaiah chapter 9 is not the redemption of souls, but the exaltation of the Son. When we think of God's plan, what do we focus on? Redemption. Yet God's plan from the beginning has always been to exalt the Son. To magnify his majesty, his glory, through his eternal reign. How does he get there? He has to be born, for unto us a child is, uh, is born, a son is given. He has to be born. And if he's born into this world, what will happen to his life? He will die. So, probably you could say implicit in verse 6 is the death of Jesus Christ. But it's not the focus of the prophecy of Jesus' reign. What does the angel do in Luke chapter 1? He's taken all of God's prophetical um, promises with regards to a king, a son, a seed, a kingdom, and a throne, and he's summarized it in the fact that he will be great because all of these things will demonstrate who he is. When you see these things, you will know that this Jesus is who? God, who sits on the throne, and he will receive the rightful worship and 
uh, attribution of the Son of the Most High that is rightfully His. At this stage, that has not happened yet. The kingdom belongs to Him. What you have in Luke 1 is God's reaffirmation of the Old Testament prophecies and promises of the reign of the Son. God sends the angel. God prophesies by means of the angel. So God makes this promise to Mary and through Mary to Israel. Through the angel to everyone as we read in the New Testament, God reaffirms his covenant covenant that is made to David and to his people. He will have a king on the throne over all his people. So, Was the birth of Jesus literal? Yes, by all means. Will the reign of Jesus be literal? Yes, by all means. What you notice in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9 is that the birth is immediately followed by the reign. And yet it's not sequential. What you see in Luke chapter 1 is that the birth is immediately followed by the reign. And yet it's not sequential. What is God doing? He's saying, I have a son. I'm going to give him to this world. But the purpose of his coming to the world is not to die on the cross alone, but for him to walk into his kingdom so that he can reign forever and ever and ever. This is the greatness of the one that was born of Mary. What a message. The absolute demonstration of his greatness is seen on his throne. You take the throne away from him, you minimize his greatness. That's God's goal. He will be great in that he will be called the son of the most high. That's future. That's in the kingdom. He will be great because he will receive the throne of his father David. That's future and the initiation of the kingdom. He will be great since he will reign over the house of Jacob and his reign will continue on forever. That's future. This is Jesus, who is God, Son of the Most High, born to the throne of David, who will reign forever and ever. All God's people said, Amen. Father, we want to say with the songwriter, O come, let us adore him. Christ, our King and our Lord. We look forward to that day when you will come again and establish your reign upon this earth over not only Israel, but over all this world. What a day that will be, where you will reign in righteousness and equity. For now, Lord, people are so confused as to the reality of your reign, but we thank you that you have not changed your mind, nor have you changed your tone or your promise. You've kept your word. You've given the Son. And now we want to say with Jesus, uh, with, with John, come, Lord Jesus, come, that you may usher in your kingdom. We wait with anticipation for that great and glorious day. So we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.